Rackhouse Ramblings, episode number 23, take two. Let's re-record it and re-upload it. <laughs> Stay right there. Hey, this is Rackhouse Ramblings. I'm Jeff, and this is episode 23. Uh, like I just said, uh, take two. This is my second try. <laughs> Apparently, I, I did the whole episode, and it cut off at about 30 minutes, and due to technical difficulties and computer shit, I'm going to re-record the whole episode. <laughs> so let's try this again. Hopefully this one sounds better too. Uh, this is the third episode of the second season. And you know what? This is my favorite time of year, archery season here in Michigan. I'm going to cue my favorite Fred Bear music. There you go. I love it. This is bow season, the cool weather. Sitting in my tree stand, spending time with my buddies. We got a lot to talk about. Uh, I'm not sure where we're going to start, but we're going to get right into it. So there you have it, Fred Bear. <laughs> One of my favorite ones right there. Uh, let's see what I've got. I'll give you guys a hand update. I'm uh, going to talk about Tabasco sauce. Going to talk about my opening day weekend. And going to do, oh, I've got a, a book to talk about. Going to talk about some bourbon. i got a bourbon surprise for you guys. So stick around. Episode 23 is coming at you. I'll be right back. All right, I got a hand update for you guys. Um, about six weeks ago, just a reminder, had uh, hand surgery, reattached the tendons after I had a stupid mistake and cut them. <laughs> right now, I am on the road to recovery, feeling good. Hopefully be back to work uh, next week on the 20th. Shout out to my guys, uh, Station 3, Unit 2. You guys are the best, man. Um, I want to thank everyone, too, that's called me just to see how I'm doing. I really appreciate that. There's a handful of people out there that uh, wanted to call and just say hi and things like that. And you know what? That... Um, that's a really good feeling. It really is. When I get people that are just, uh, uh, they care enough to call and want to see how I'm doing, just shoot the breeze. You know what? That was pretty cool. I, um, I'm very blessed, very lucky guy to have friends like you guys. So, um, that being done, I want to say thanks. Thanks all you guys. Uh, so right now I got no stitches, no cast finished up like the third week of physical therapy. And I can't say enough good things about my therapist, uh, Gavin and the team over or the, the people at team rehab in Northville. They have been so, so, so helpful. I can't say enough good things about them. Um, in the last, just like two weeks, I've made really big strides. Um, and I'm in the home stretch here. So, uh, like I was saying on the 20th, I should be back to work is what everything's looking looking like when I first went in there, like the first week I couldn't even close my hand. So think of making a fist, right? I couldn't even do it. Couldn't hold a toothbrush, couldn't hold a fork. Um, nothing couldn't squeeze, couldn't. And now I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a hundred percent, but I'm pretty, pretty darn close, man. We're pushing it this week. Um, lifting some weights, lifting some, uh, dumbbells, things like that, pulling the, uh, uh, what they call battle ropes and the TRX rings and all that. So it's really, really cool. It's come a long, long way. And, um, the toughest part is holding back. So like just today was probably the first day that I didn't hold back on anything. I gave it everything I had and they measure your grip strength and all that sort of thing. And I'm really, really close. So it's by next week, I'm going to be good to go. So, uh, the swelling's gone down. When I first went in, it looked like one giant knuckle. You know, you have four knuckles when you make a fist. I had one. 
going across the whole thing. So that swelling has come down. My scar is healing so, so it looks like a line right now across my knuckles. You can't even, I wouldn't say can't tell, but it works good. And part of the therapy is like they do this massage to break up the the, uh, scar tissue and it really, really helps. Uses like a metal tongue depressor to kind of scrunch all that stuff and push those lumps around and it's like a grinding sound, but man, it, it really, really helps. So, um, he even set me up with, uh, I was telling him, you know, that archery season's a big deal for me. And he set me up on the machine. Um, like I'm drawing back my bow, got me up to my, uh, 55 pound draw weight, which is really, really good. And, um, I just want to thanks Gavin. If you're listening, that's really cool, man. And thanks to Tyler and CJ and everyone else there. Um, so I guess, I guess that's where we're at. That's a hand update. So, uh, we'll be right back. If you can hear the pages flipping, I'm reading my notes. If you can hear a glass tipping, I'm sipping bourbon. Cause like I said, this is a second recording of this episode. I actually recorded it like three nights ago and got a couple of text messages that there are technical difficulties. So I'm bumping ahead. I've already, I'm already tasting the bourbon. I'm going through my notes for the second time, but it's cool. It's going smoother this time. I like the sound. I like the audio. Um, and I like you guys stay right there. Be right back with another segment. House Ramblings is back in this segment. This is gonna kind of a cool one. Um, this is about Tabasco sauce, and it's funny. So while I'm sitting home, ice in my hand, uh, channel surfing, um, I came across a thing. It was called Food Factories or how it's made or something like that. I can't remember the exact one. It was uh, that was airing, but it was about uh, Tabasco sauce. Um, technically, I guess what they call it, spicy red pepper sauce from Louisiana, and it's by. Uh, the McElhaney Company. So I'm, I'm surfing through, I see this little segment and what caught my eye is the similarities between bourbon and Tabasco sauce. So I'm watching this thing and uh, what they do is uh, it's very simple products. It's, this is a spicy red pepper, vinegar, salt, and they put it in an age in a white oak barrel. Sounds a lot like bourbon, right? I was thinking in my head, the parallels are uh, bourbons made with the sour mash this is made with a spicy red pepper mash. And it's really like an oatmeal, uh, red oatmeal kind of looking product or salsa almost that they put in the barrel, fill it all the way to the top. They cap it with the wood lid and then um, stand the barrel up and uh, fill that little rim with salt, like table salt. And it turns out this place is in uh, Louisiana, uh, in uh, Avery Island, Louisiana. And under the island is salt. So on top of the island is the factory where they make this stuff is the field where they grow the red peppers and underneath the island is the salt mine where they get the salt. So it's all made in one place. And so I did a deep dive and like usual, like everything else, I go to the webpage, right? www.tabasco.com, T-A-B-A-S-C-O.com. And it's a cool webpage. Check it out. Um, this company, uh, everything I'm going to tell you is according to their webpage on their history and you can find it there. So if you want to follow along, uh, it started by a guy named Edmund McElhaney in 1868. And like I was saying, it's on Avery Island uh, in Louisiana. It's way down by the ocean, the southern part. And um, it's still family owned, still in the same location since 1868. And the story of the sauce, according to their website, is, um, I'll quote it here, the diet of the Reconstruction South was bland and monotonous, especially by Louisiana standards. So Edmund McElhaney decided to create a pepper sauce to give the food some flavor and excitement. So after uh, the Civil War, the Reconstruction, with all rationing and things like that, this helped make the food taste better. 
And it goes on to talk about something about his pepper seeds. They call it sowing the seeds. Uh, and I'll quote here, a food lover and avid gardener, Edmund McElhaney was given seeds of capsicum frutescan peppers that had come from Mexico or Central America. On Avery Island in South Louisiana, he sowed the seeds, nurtured the plants, and delighted in the spicy flavor the peppers bore. Many years later, field hands used a little red stick, or they call it la petite baton rouge, to measure the ripeness of the peppers. Staying true to the history of Tabasco brand, they still use it today to ensure the quality of the harvest. McElhaney grew his first commercial pepper crop in 1868. The next year, he sent out 658 bottles of the sauce at $1 a piece. And for some reason, I don't know the exchange rate, but a dollar sounds pretty expensive to me at the time for a little bottle of sauce. Um, sent to wholesale grocers around the Gulf Coast, particularly in New Orleans. He labeled it Tabasco, a word of Mexican Indian origin believed to mean place where the soil is humid or place of the coral or oyster shell. McElhaney secured a patent in 1870, and Tabasco sauce began its journey to set the culinary world on fire. Sales grew, and by the late 1870s, he sold his sauce throughout the U.S. and even in Europe. McElhaney uh, packaged the sauce in a small cologne-type bottle with sprinkler fitment, which he then corked and sealed in green wax. The sprinkler fitment was important because his pepper sauce was concentrated, and the best use was sprinkled, not poured. Though we no longer seal our bottles with wax, the sauce inside is every bit as pungent as the one McElhaney first bottled back in 1868. So that's kind of cool. Um, while I was watching uh, the TV segment, they focused on the barrel, the aging. Um, like I was saying, it's similar to bourbon. The red pepper mash reminded me of the sour mash. And the ingredients were really just three ingredients. Uh, the peppers, the vinegar, and the salt. That's all it is. And then they let it age for three years. And I guess by pouring the salt over the top of the barrel, that allows the, uh, the mash to kind of exhale, they call it. And the salt keeps bacteria from growing, uh, inhibits bacteria and all that. It was really kind of an interesting thing. Um, I also found out that the uh, island that they're on is a wildlife preserve for a snowy egret. So you can apparently vacation on this island. They have a restaurant and this preserve and all the tour and everything. So check it out if you're ever down that way. In Louisiana, uh, the McElhaney Company at www.tabasco.com. Um, check it out and get you some. We'll be right back. All right, Rackhouse Rambling is back, and I want to talk about opening day. Here we go. Cue the Fred Bear music, right? It never gets old for me. <laughs> Let's talk about opening day, one of my favorite days of the year. Um, if you're familiar with bow hunting, you might know guys like Pope and Young, Fred Bear, Tread Barda, and then me. That's right. We're all one percenters. Um, what do we all have in common? Archery, right? That's right. All of us in that group, Pope Young, Fred Bear, Tread Barda, and me have harvested a deer with an old, old school stick and string, longbow, recurve bow. Nothing fancy, just the basics, man. Um, so I, I guess I'd call myself a one percenter. I know some of you are laughing, but that's all right. You have to do it to be to call yourself that. So anyway, uh, I want to have a Fred Bear quote here. So we're going to talk about archery, talk about Michigan's opening day. And my Fred Bear quote is, you can learn more about hunting deer with a bow and arrow in a week than a gun hunter will learn in his entire life. Wow, that's deep stuff. It's powerful. How about, I, you know what, too? I've got another one. Let me read this one to you. When a hunter is in a tree stand with high moral values and with the proper hunting ethics, 
and richer for the experience, the hunter is 20 feet closer to God. For me, it's like 21 or 22 feet up. Anyway, I love Fred Bear. I could read his quotes all afternoon. Um, if you're, you know, if you're a fan of boat hunting and you really want to get a thrill, go to Amazon, buy the Fred Bear DVD collection. It's four DVDs of all Fred Bear bow hunts. And what's to me, what really makes these special, really makes them uh, above average and all the cool shit, is he used a recurve bow with wood arrows and just basic skill outdoorsmanship to hunt wild game like things like deer, grizzly bears, tigers. Freaking elephants, all with a, they call it stick and string, a wood arrow, wood bow and arrow, wood string. And I mean, no scent lock, no GPS, no fancy equipment, nothing like that. Um, so check it out. It's on Amazon, Fred Bear DVD collection. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. Let's get, let's get back to opening day. So I spent my opening day with Rick, Greg, and Joe. Shout out to these guys. Uh, they invited me out to their deer camp. And I am truly grateful for being in, just to be invited to a deer camp, I think is pretty cool. Uh, they hunt public land uh, north of Howell, and it's no secret spot or anything. It's a state game area called Oak Grove. And um, these guys really know the woods well in that area, and they put in their time so they can find deer. Me, on the other hand, I'm completely new to, the, to, to that area of woods. I did uh, do some reconnaissance, spent an afternoon the week before scouting out some spots, driving around, and I picked out a spot, you know, that I that I thought I'd work for opening day. Um, so uh, the the evening before, we stayed out at Greg's house, and he was such a gracious host. We stayed and want to thank him and his wife Jordan for for hosting. Um, we spent the evening hanging out, drinking beer, swapping beer stories, and to me, that's every bit as fun as the hunting part is the stuff that leads up to it, the camaraderie, the guys, the sharing stories, the laughing. And I really uh, hold that part of the deer camp special. Um, so I want to, you know, thank, thank you to you guys for letting me come out and spend that with you. So anyway, morning came early. We are up at four 30. Uh, we got dressed, had coffee and oatmeal, and then you got like a 15 or 20 minute drive from his house to your hunting spot. So we kind of all get in our vehicles and go our separate ways. And I showed up to my spot early. I was there by 6, 6.15, I think it was, or something like that. And I should have planned a little better because when I got there, I had my climber, my Summit Viper climber, and found my tree, had my little uh, public land reflective things out there so I knew where I was going. And I get out the cables for my climber and they wouldn't fit around the tree. It's like, what the f- shit? It's That part sucks. So I kind of walked back to my truck, sat there, waited for the sun to come up, and then I walked back out again to pick another tree. And uh, so finally I picked the tree, sat up there, and sat for a few hours, probably two, two and a half hours, found a nice oak tree, uh, but didn't see anything. And the whole time up in my tree, I am using my um, smartphone to look at uh, aerial maps. And there's a couple of apps that will help you with it, and I was using Onyx. And looking at my Onyx and, and Rick and... Greg and them were showing me the things they they're real knowledgeable at it and they're showing me what to look for. And so I, I had remembered that conversation. So I'm sitting in the stand, not seeing nuts. Okay. I can see this point of hardwoods going out into the uh, swamp. I said in my head, I'm speaking to myself saying, okay, I'm going to head over there. So probably nine, nine 30 comes and I said, haven't seen anything. I climb down, pack up my stand and start heading towards this point. And I probably didn't even get uh, 50 yards and ran into somebody else's pop-up line that was sitting out there. He had somebody else had the same idea, obviously. So turned around, headed back to the truck again, have to reassess, come up with another plan. And by now there's traffic driving up and down the dirt road in the area. And um 
so I'm thinking there's other people obviously doing the same thing I am. And so get back on the, on the app, do some more scouting. And I kind of struggle with that. I'm more of a boots on the ground. I need to see it and feel it type of person. So drive around to these different spots. I thought would look good after about 45 minutes. I found another spot and it was along this power line. It was public land um, underneath the power line. I found lots of deer trails and fresh poop and stuff crisscrossing the power lines. So I picked out a nice tree, kind of give me a good view, trimmed out some branches, trimmed uh, some of the brush at the base of the tree so I could climb up it. Right. And I'm going to pause right here. My story goes on and on. But what I found out was after trimming these branches and all that, I woke up the next morning with uh, poison ivy, had it all around my eyes and my hands, even the freaking palms of my hands had poison ivy. So anyway, I, I pause it right there, but that's, I'm sure that's where I got it. So anyway, let's get back to where I was at. I trimmed the tree. Um, by now our phones were texting back and forth and, uh, uh, we met for lunch and I'm thinking, cool, I got a great, you know, we're sitting at lunch. I got a spot guys. It's cool. You know, I had a rough morning, but now I'm going to go and hunt this afternoon spot. So we met in town at the Coney Island, had some breakfast and, uh, end up going back out for the afternoon hunt. Right. You know, a few hours later I come back and when you know it, somebody had the same fucking idea. <laughs> somebody was in my spot and I thought mother scratch. And you know, I can get mad and I get frustrated and all that, but that, the truth is it's public land, right? Anyone can go there. Anyone can use it. And that's part of the deal when you hunt public land. And that's what Rick and Greg and Joe kind of remind me is that you have to be resourceful. You have to be able to adapt. You have to be able to change your tactics, change your location, all that. And you got to roll with it, right? Because after all, it's your day off. It's opening day. You're out hunting. That's part of the deal. So I had to get in a different frame of mind and kind of regroup again, right? So I'm driving around some more. Another hour goes by. Uh, every spot I'm going to, there's other hunters. Finally, I found a little parking spot. It's got like four or five empty spaces and I pull in. So as I pull in, another guy pulls in right behind me. I thought, oh, you know, I'm here. Let's just do this. So as soon as we park, he gets out and walks over and, you know, starts talking to me. And I said, you know, he asked where I was going to hunt. Right. And I said, I explained to him, you know, I'm new here. I have no idea. I really don't know. And he was really cool about it. He, he was going to hunt across the street. Uh, from the parking lot. And he suggested, he goes, Hey, you know what? If you walk through here, there's a swamp back there. Um, that'd probably be a good place for you back in there. And I, so we agreed we kind of went opposite ways and that was kind of cool. So I, I get out of the car, follow, walk towards where he's talking about, and it ends up being a, a trail and it's kind of overlooking, overlooking a, a slope downward, kind of a, I don't want to say a valley, but just a hilltop where I'm walking along. And if you follow it down, it's hardwoods. And then as it flattens out, there's cattails and you can see a swamp. And if you look a little further, you can even see open water. So I'm walking, uh, probably going another 100 yards, and I see a ladder stand, but no one's in it. So that's okay. It's public land, right? People can do that. So I keep walking past it, and I finally, um, I'm staying on the same ridge, and I kind of hit where the ridge, I don't want to kind of dead end into really thick saplings. So I kind of stopped there and backed up about 50 yards so I could get a good view and picked a tree, got my climber up, had a nice uh, overlook. I could see... Uh, the slope down below me, I could see the cattails, I could see the open water beyond them. If I turned around behind me, I could kind of see like a little meadow at the top of the slope with just tall grass. And here I am sitting in the hardwoods, right? And so by now it's coming up four o'clock, get all my shit together, I'm up in the tree, just kind of sitting there uh, surfing on my phone, you know. And uh, it was really a nice afternoon, it's sun then clouds and sun and clouds every 15 minutes or whatever. And finally around six o'clock, I saw a spike uh, buck down the slope uh, in the thick cattails and he's moving right to left. And, 
um, paying no attention, didn't see me or whatever. He was probably, I bet you about 30, 35 yards. If he was in a clear, if I had a clear shooting line, I could have gotten a shot, but he didn't. And, you know, I'm trying, uh, my little doe in the can, it goes, trying to get him to come towards me, but he didn't care. He just kept right on going. Um, but just seeing a deer, I thought that was pretty cool. I'm texting back and forth with the guys. Hey, I saw one and that sort of thing. So finally, about a half hour later, out of the corner of my eye, um, off to the right, I thought I, I thought I saw a bobcat. I don't know why I think it a bobcat, but it was because it was this brown shape with a white belly and a dark tail um, kind of creeping down the slope from my right. And then I'm like, oh, cool. Maybe I'll get a cool picture of a bobcat. But then I do a double take and there's another one. And I'm like, what the shit? And then I get out my binoculars and I can see, oh, it wasn't bobcat. These are two deer and they're two uh, yearlings. They're not very big at all. Probably, you know, size of a Great Dane, maybe not even quite that big. And they're walking toward me. I thought, cool. So they're walking toward me and I look just beyond them is another deer, third one. But this one's the mama. It's a little bit bigger. So and I'm thinking, okay, that's the deer for me is the bigger deer, right? So the two little ones come walking right up to my stand, but the mama, the doe, she stops short, probably about 35, 40 yards, somewhere out there. And I can watch her lift her nose and sniff the air. And she sniffed and she sniffed and wasn't sure and wasn't sure. And then she stood there and then looked around and then turned the other way and went the opposite direction. So she didn't snort, she didn't stop or anything like that, just kind of walked away. And so that's kind of like a learning moment, right? Like Fred Bear says, you learn more in a week. And what that taught me was there was something in the air that she didn't like. She wasn't alarmed by it. She wasn't scared by it, but there was something that she didn't like. And of course, guess what I did? Probably 20 minutes before she walked up as I peed off my stand. <laughs> she probably smelled the coffee I had that afternoon. So now I know that's what I learned. You know, I always hear about, well, you know, urine is sterile and the deer don't smell it. Well, guess what? I just witnessed it and I just learned something they smell it. So I wouldn't, I won't do that again. So anyway, the little, the mama walks away, but the yearlings came back and they're literally right under my, under my stand. And they're just walking back and forth. I could have jumped off and climbed right on top of one easily. But anyway, um, I sat there for a while longer and it started to rain, you know, about 6.30, 6.45, something like that. And uh, gathered up my stuff and started walking back to the truck, kicked up another deer on the way back, which I think was the spike. So it saw a total of one, two, three, four, five, I guess you'd say five encounters, five deer, right? On opening day. And it was kind of after talking with Greg about it, we had got back to the house. Um, it was kind of a cool thing. Like if you take it in perspective here, I went to a place I'd never hunted before, never seen, uh, didn't know much about it. Um, but in the end I was able to find deer. I was able I could have had, if I really, really, really wanted to, could have taken a small deer, but that's not what I wanted. So it was pretty a successful day, even for all the ups and the downs, um, the reassessing, the refiguring, going to different places. I trust my gut, trust my instincts, uh, trust my experience. And I saw a deer. So that was pretty cool. Um, so anyway, I got my truck, started driving back and I, uh, during the ride back, I called my buddy Andy and he was up in Gladwin for the opener and he was hunting by himself. So by the time I hung up the phone, I, I kind of changed my plans on the fly and decided, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to go up to Gladwin and hunt with Andy. So for tonight, we're going to hang out. Me and uh, Greg and Rick and Joe uh, went back to Greg's. We had venison stew for dinner. We sampled some bourbon. We told some deer stories. Um, we had a great night. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun sitting around the table shooting the shit. Uh, the next morning, of course, I woke up, had 
I have poison ivy all over my face and hands. So I ran home, uh, back to my house in Northville, cleaned up, um, grabbed some gear, uh, had some prednisone, started taking that, and that helped quite a bit. Grabbed a cooler, drove up to Gladwin. I was back up in Gladwin by one o'clock. And that evening, um, I was hunting a different area and even hunting different styles. So at my buddy Andy's place, uh, I hunted in a pop-up blind. So he had set me up in this pop-up blind on the edge of a meadow with uh, hardwoods around it. And in this same spot, he's been hunting there for years. He harvested a nice uh, eight-point buck last year there. And uh, so we're sitting there in the evening, close to dusk. I heard a deer snort and stomp like and, and run off. I couldn't see it, but it was pretty close. Had to be within 50 yards. Um, that was the closest I had seen whatever. But just like at, at, at Greg's camp, you know, um, there I was in a meadow, come across deer, uh, but no deer, or come across deer. I didn't see any deer. So anyway, uh, sun goes down. We met back at camp and uh, uh, enjoyed the night and got up next morning, hunted a different spot and another pop-up blind, but didn't see anything. Um, the nice thing was we came back in, had breakfast, bacon and eggs. That's one of my favorites. I always love that. And uh, spent the day helping out with some chores. It was a beautiful day, so, uh, sunny um, beautiful fall day. We had a, a great time, had a campfire, cooked some hot wings over the fire for lunch, even though we probably didn't need lunch. We had just ate breakfast. But anyway, um, that evening I took my climber out and I sat in the meadow, uh, where I sat the first night, uh, evening, except this time I went and took my climber back into the hardwoods, maybe another 60 yards, 70 yards, something like that. And the whole time I'm sitting there that evening, um, beautiful fall day. Of course, you can hear acorns dropping like rain, just all evening. And the squirrels are going crazy. And, um, I think, and you know, this is, might be a good spot. And, uh, around five o'clock, I saw a doe off to my right grazing at 45 yards. It sat there grazing for so long. I was able to take a picture, uh, get out my, uh, my range finder, range find it and did the same doe on the can, <laughs> nothing. So the doe walks back behind me to the right. And I'm texting my buddy Andy and sending him pictures and everything. I was kind of excited. And um, at about 6.30, a doe came back. I thought it was a uh, squirrel. Walked right up behind my tree within 20 yards. And imagine if you're sitting in your car driving and you look over your shoulder to the back seat uh, and you have to yell at your kids or something. That's kind of the shot I would have to take, like right over my right shoulder uh, behind me down low. So I'm grabbing my bow and I'm trying to make that shot and twist and turn. The, the deer is pretty close. Like I said, within 20 yards, it was my first pin. And I put the pin on and let the, the release go. And my bow exploded. Boom. Scared the living shit out of me. And I'm pretty sure what happened was when I, when I drew the bow back, I gripped the bow too tight. And you kind of twist that grip in your hand. They call it torquing. And as the string comes forward, it wants to ride back on the cam wheels. Um, just like a, a trolley car or whatever, but the string jumped the track, jumped the cables and exploded the, the cam wheel on the bottom. Um, totally shattered the, the aluminum cam wheel and busted the bow and all that. So I, I'm sitting there motherfucking everything, getting off and the deer's just looking up at me, head back down, eating acorns, look up at me, head back down. I'm packing my stuff. I, I could have probably grabbed my pocket knife and jumped out again. But anyway, that was my own fault for doing that. So that was my, my weekend of uh, opening weekend. No no deer in the freezer, but I did have some encounters. Uh, had a lot of fun. Went to two different deer camps. Had great weather. Hand felt great. Everything was great. Uh, came back Monday and <laughs> ordered a brand new bow. 
<laughs> so by the time Friday rolled around, I had a new bow, had it sighted in. And by last weekend, I was up at my place in Barton City. Uh, did see one doe, nothing to shoot, but I'm going to go back up this coming weekend. So anyway, there you have it. Archery season, uh, 2020 opening days in the books. I hope you guys like that story. If you're interested in archery hunting, uh, any of the weekends, uh, give me a shout, give me a text. I'm always looking for people to hunt and I'm always looking for, uh, cool people to come up to my place and archery hunt. So we'll be right back with more, uh, Rackhouse Ramblings episode 23. Stay right there. All right. Episode 23 is back. We've got a book review, another cool book to read. Um, we haven't done one of these in a while. I was kind of excited for this. The book is called Year of the Cow by Jared Stone. And it's about a guy that wanted to be more connected with knowing where his food came from. So rather than than uh, buy his beef from the grocery store, he bought an entire cow from a farmer and had it butchered. And this book uh, it takes place over one year. And that's approximately how long it took him to eat the whole uh, freezer full of beef from a cow. It's very interesting. I liked it. Um, he, it's an easy, easy, easy read. We found it at the dollar store, right? For $1 and found it for me. <laughs> and I, I liked it cause it was like someone talking to you. It was very relatable, not very scientific, but, uh, easy to follow. Um, and I learned a few things from it, like the difference between a grass fed cow and a grain fed cow. So, uh, it turns out a, a grain fed, that's more of a production cow and grain is made for making the cow grow quick. Uh, like when, so when you sell, buy meat, right, it's by the pound. So think about it. If you're uh, a, a farmer and you want to sell your cow, the more it weighs, the more you get paid. So you're going to feed it grain to fatten it up, right? But cows are not meant to eat grain. They're meant to eat grass. Uh, cows have a couple of stomachs and that's the idea is they eat the grass. It goes into one stomach, gets broken down, then goes to another stomach, but their body can't break down grain. So what has to happen is if you're feeding them grain, now you have to feed them these antibiotics and stuff like that. Yeah, think of like a, a acid reflux, but in a cow, because they're eating what they're not supposed to eat. So antibiotics, uh, medicines, and things like that is a lot of it is due to the diet that we're trying to fatten them up on, right? So, and also what I found out was, and I tried this, my grass-fed beef tastes to me, it tastes better than grain fed, but try it, try it for yourself. I won't tell you, I guess all the stuff in the book, you know, you can read it for yourself, but for a buck, it's called the year of the cow. It's worth reading. Um, I liked the, another thing I liked was he talked about the different cuts of meat and why we cook them, how we cook them. So like if it's a muscle that gets used every day, like a rump or a shoulder, um, that piece of meat is dense and needs to cook slower. They call it braising or slow cook or crock pot or whatever. And it has to do that to break down that muscle tissue to make it palatable so you don't have to chew it a thousand times. But if you ate uh, a filet mignon, which is the tender one, like a, the, the softest piece of meat that doesn't get used a lot along the back, right along the spine, that's a soft piece of meat. You can cook it quick. You can cook it on a grill. You can cook it on a skillet. Uh, you would eat it rare. You wouldn't cook it well done, things like that. Um, in between each chapter is a recipe on how to cook that particular cut of meat that he would talk about in the previous chapter. And that part I like too, is why you do it. Here's why we cook it slow. It breaks down the tissue, makes it easier to chew and things like that. Um, he made it really, really easy to understand. And um, I guess that's, you know, I'll let you guys read it for yourself. Check it out. You're the cow, Jared Stone. 
I found it at the dollar store. If anyone wants to borrow it too, just shoot me a text. You can you can borrow my copy and check it out. So there you go. A cool book to read. Be right back uh, with our Bourbon Spotlight. All right. Rackhouse Ramway is back. This is uh, the Bourbon Spotlight. Now this, this spotlight is going to be different. Um, we're going to talk about Costco bourbon. It's called Kirkland, right? Every If you've ever been to Costco, all their shit is called Kirkland Signature Brand, right? Um, my I found this bottle on my last trip to Kentucky, ran into a Costco, uh, bought a shit ton of shit, probably spent over $300 there as a matter of fact. But anyway, um, normally I would be able to go to a website and I would tell you, oh, this is the master distiller and this is the mash bill and this is the story behind the distillery and all that. And with Costco bourbon, the Kirkland signature, there's none of that, right? Um, Costco is known for having people make stuff for them and the bourbon is no different. They do the same thing, I believe, with rum and uh, Canadian type blended whiskey. Uh, I think they even do a scotch, all the different things are, are uh, subcontracted out, I would say, right? Um, so this one, I couldn't really do it, but I did search the internet and nobody knows for sure who the exact distiller is for this particular bourbon, but the majority of the speculation believes that it is called by a company called uh, George Dickel in Tennessee. Um, yeah, I know I get it. Dickel, Dick. <laughs> so anyway, um, it would have been cool if I'd get a bottle of George Dickel and do a taste comparison, but I don't. So that being said, anyway, um, I'm going to look at the bottle here. Uh, when you go to Costco, of course, everything's cheaper, right? But one of the things Costco does is maybe not necessarily make it cheaper, but for the same money, you get more product. And that's the, the case with this. So when you buy a bottle of bourbon, it's 750 ml. When you buy a bottle of Kirkland Signature bourbon, it is one liter. So the price is, is the same. If I remember, it's 39 bucks, but this is a one liter bottle. So there you have it. Uh, I'm going to read the label here. It says Kirkland Signature Premium Small Batch Bourbon, Tennessee Straight Bourbon Whiskey. It's aged seven years. Uh, distilled and bottled in the sovereign state of Tennessee. Batch T1796. It is 103 proof. The Kirkland Signature Small Batch Bourbon has been aged seven years in charred American white oak barrels. Complex aromas of caramel molasses, citrus, and spice with a faint smoky background and a long, rich finish. So, um, like I said, at the very beginning of the podcast, this is the second time recording this podcast, and I tasted this a few nights ago. So the whole time we've been doing this podcast, I've been sipping on this bourbon, and it's pretty good. It is, um, if I was to compare it to a bourbon, I thought it compared to a Woodford Reserve myself. Uh, there is no burn. There's none of that acidic uh, finish when it goes down it has a very smooth finish and their label says like a smoky a hint of smoky with a faint smoky background and I think that's true and also it says complex aroma of caramel molasses I noticed that also so if you happen to see this I would recommend you pick up a bottle it's good uh, neat the way I'm drinking it and I imagine probably make a, a good mixed drink also um, the, the benefit is that the bottle is bigger um, but there you have it, Kirkland uh, Signature Bourbon. Give it a taste. It's pretty good. Uh, thank you guys for listening. And I will be back uh, at the station, and it sounds like on the 20th. I'm looking forward to seeing everyone, saying hi to everyone. And a couple of shout-outs before we uh, end today's episode. 
I've been getting a lot of requests about uh, people that want to sit in, people that want to be involved in the podcast. And I think that's really cool with this Corona thing. I think I could get uh, someone in here. Uh, and what I'm looking for is I want someone to uh, come into this, uh, my studio. You have to come to Northville and sit alongside while I talk about all these topics. And I'm looking for someone that will add something to the conversation, someone that might be interested in bourbon, maybe someone that wants to share a story, something like that. So not necessarily a co-host, but just kind of sit in here and throw in a few comments, add something to it. And I think it would be fun. If you are interested, shoot me a, a text, let me know. Uh, we'll figure out when to do it and uh, make it happen. I've had a few requests now from people and I'm open to ideas. If you want to talk about something else, that too, that's cool. But just throwing that out there. And then also, if there's anyone out there interested in uh, bow hunting this season, even if you've never done it, I could probably set you up with about everything everything you need. Uh, give me a text, give me a shout. So there you have it. Rackhouse Ramblings, episode 23, second time around. Thank you guys for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye.